Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. When our kids were teenagers and going out on a Saturday night, we always sent them off with two messages ringing in their ears. The first was, watch out for deer, because we lived in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, where deer seemed as numerous as squirrels, and it was only a matter of time before you were going to run into one or one was going to run into you. So we were always telling our young drivers, watch out for deer. And the other message that we sent them off with was, remember, nothing good happens after 11 o'clock. That was our way of reminding them that they needed to be home at a reasonable hour and that the later they stayed out, the more trouble they were likely to get into. That was all well and good until we shared that nugget of wisdom with our friends who then started using it on their kids. And our kids came back to us saying, all our friends are mad at you for telling their parents that nothing good happens after 11 o'clock thing. (laughs) Well, it might be an exaggeration. Uh, There might be some good things that could happen to a teenager after 11 o'clock, but the later you're out, the more likely trouble is to find you in the backseat of a parked car, at a party where alcohol and drugs are being passed around, or trying to navigate your way home after the party. Or maybe you didn't indulge, but You know, it's late at night and another driver swerves across the center line directly in your path. More bad than good happens after 11 o'clock on a Saturday night. And today's passage hints that the same thing is true the later it gets in human history. Folks, it sure does look to me like it's after 11 o'clock. All kinds of evil and craziness have started coming out of the woodwork And one of the themes that runs through Paul's two letters to Timothy is that the later it gets, the worse the times will be. And one of the things that will get worse in latter times will be the destructive influence of false teachers. Paul opened his letter to his young colleague Timothy by telling him that part of his assignment in the church at Ephesus was to ensure that certain people didn't go on teaching Uh, speculative and legalistic things. So the letter starts off by kind of telling Timothy to rein in false teaching. And then he says, you know, encourage the people to keep focused on the life-transforming gospel of Christ instead. He goes on in chapters 2 and 3 to address how people should behave when they come to church and the qualifications of the elders and deacons who would lead and serve them. And then he ended chapter 3, as we saw last time, by coming back to a celebration of the gospel that he referred to as the mystery of godliness. And now in chapter 4, he returns to warn about the influence of false teachers, those who would distort the gospel. 
And here's the warning he gives, 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5. He says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Here in verse 1, Paul makes reference to later times. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith. This is similar to another expression Paul will use in his second letter to Timothy. In 2 Timothy 3.1, he refers to the last days, and he seems to be making reference to the same period of time when he uses these two terms, latter days, in the last days. Both of these have to do with how the situation will degenerate in the days leading up to Christ's return. And here in 1 Timothy 4, he particularly warns against the damaging influence of teachers, false teachers in those days. The Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. This was the consistent witness of the Spirit in the life of the church, going all the way back to Jesus himself, when Jesus warned that in the days leading up to his appearing, there would be false Christs and false prophets leading people astray. Peter and Jude addressed the same issue in their letters. Uh, Paul himself emphasized this in his letters to the Thessalonian church. Uh, Paul, six years prior to the writing of 1 Timothy, spoke to the elders of the church at Ephesus and warned that they would have to be on guard against false teachers. And what Paul is telling us about false teachers here in 1 Timothy 4 is that the later it gets, the more vigilance we'll need. The later it gets, the more vigilance we'll need. Understanding the principles Paul lays out here in 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5 will help us prepare to meet the increasing challenges false teachers will present to the church in later times, in the times in which we live. The first principle that Paul gives us to prepare us to deal with these false teachers is this. The effect of false teaching is defection. We need to understand that the effect of false teaching is defection. Verse 1, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith. When false teaching is rampant, one of the obvious impacts will be people departing from the faith. That's one of the ways you'll know that false teachers are active. They will, they, they will, there will be people will withdraw or separate from the church, the keeper and guardian of the faith. These are church people, though not truly saved because John says in one of his epistles that if they were truly of us, they would not have gone out from us. But these are church people, though not truly saved, who come under the influence of these false teachers and then wander away. As Paul warned the elders of Ephesus just six years prior to the writing of 1 Timothy, he said, and I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. That's the goal of false teachers, to draw away disciples after them. And so people who were once part of the church will withdraw or separate from the faith. The effect of false teaching is defection. 
It's always been a problem for the church, and Paul says that in the later days, it will get worse and worse. I don't think it's any coincidence that in the wake of so much false teaching from American pulpits, not to mention anti-Christian teaching in many of our universities and a plethora of voices speaking lies on social media, I don't think it's any coincidence that we are witnessing massive defections from the American church. According to the Pew Research Center, uh, the composition of the United States as far as religious affiliation is becoming increasingly secular. They said that in December of 2021, their data pointed out that the number of people who identified as religiously unaffiliated increased six percentage points in just five years and increased 10 percentage points over a decade so that they said currently, and this was in December of 2021, currently about three in 10 U.S. adults, 29% are religious nuns. Now that's not Catholic ladies in habits, and UNS, this is religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S. In other words, these are people who have no religion. They're religiously unaffiliated. They are, are people who identify themselves as atheists, agnostics, or nothing in particular. And self-identified Christians of all varieties now make up 63% of the population. So 29% say they are nothing. 63% say they are Christian, which means that we outnumber religious nuns by a little over, you know, two times. But get this. This is a vast change from 2007 when the center first began asking their question about religious identity. And at that time, Christians out outnumbered nuns by almost five to one. 78% to 16%. Now it's 63% to 29%. America is rapidly becoming de-churched. The effect of false teaching is defection. But where does this false teaching come from? Well, Paul answers that question in verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. So if the effect of false teaching is defection, the second principle is that the origin of false teaching is demonic. The origin of false teaching is demonic. People in later times will depart from the faith because they're paying too much attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. Now, you need to note here that when Paul talks about deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, he doesn't act as if these are mythical creatures. He's taking it that these forces are real. And he warned us about the same thing in Ephesians 6 when he said, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Paul wants Timothy to realize that he's engaged in a spiritual battle. The teachings that lead people astray originate with demons, and that's been true ever since Adam and Eve walked in the garden. Because remember when God said, you know, you shall eat of any, any tree in the garden that you want, but of the tree in the middle of the garden you shall not eat, or in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. And before you know it, the serpent is saying to the woman, you will not surely die. 
For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Eve, God's holding out on you. He doesn't want what's best for you. Go ahead and eat. It was Satan, the chief of demons, who took it upon himself to instruct Eve in the garden. And, and the only problem was that he filled her with lies and caused her to question the goodness of God. And what was the purpose? Defection. To, to cause a rift between Adam and Eve and God. And Satan and his henchmen have been plying that same strategy ever since. Using lies and half-truths, they persuade people to walk away from God, to not trust him, to not believe that he has their best interest at heart. He, he, he wants them to defect from the faith, and the later it gets, the more active these forces will be. The later it gets, the more vigilance we'll need. The effect of false teaching is defection. The origin of false teaching is demonic. And the third principle that Paul gives us here is, is that the agents of false teaching are hypocrites. The agents of false teaching are hypocrites. He talks about how these doctrines, these false teachings, come through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. That's what he says in verse 2. You see, though false teaching originates with demons, the demons depend on human agents to be their mouthpieces because I suppose if a demon came to you offering to give you instruction, you'd run away in fear. So they recruit human agents to take their lives to the masses. One might come dressed in the robes of a clergyman. Another's picture might grace the back cover of a New Age bestseller. Another might occupy a distinguished endowed chair at a fine university. Another might come to you as a scantily clad, a clad TikTok influencer. And their messages are so appealing. You know, one tells you that God isn't concerned with your sin. He just wants you to love your authentic self. And another says, you know, I can show you how you can be one with the universe and claim your, your divinity. Another persuades you to throw off the shackles of your parents' religion and find your own truth. And the influencer tells you to be loud and proud and sleep with whoever you want. But Paul says these agents of false teaching, whatever their guise or message, they have two things in common. One is that they're insincere liars. They're hypocrites. They try to persuade you that you'll be so much better off if you pay attention to them and, and do what they're telling you to do when they know full well that what they teach isn't even working for them. And so the preacher wants you to think that God doesn't want to change you. He just wants you to love yourself when he knows full well that he himself is racked with guilt and self-loathing. Or the New Age guru wants you to discover your own divinity, all the while she can't shake the dark spirits that have a grip on her own soul. The university professor wants to liberate you from the shackles of your parents' faith, but secretly longs for the simple assurance of his God-fearing mother. Or the TikTok influencer encourages you to sleep with whoever you want, but her flirty reels can't fill the emptiness she feels deep in her own soul. They are insincere liars. And Paul says their consciences are seared. The word seared is the word from which we get our word cauterize. You know how you cauterize something when you, you burn it as with a hot iron? 
This may mean that they have believed their own lies for so long that their consciences are burned. They, they no longer feel guilty. They're beyond feeling guilty about the lies they tell. It may also communicate that their consciences have been branded, have been stamped with the brand mark that indicates that they're owned by another, in this case, by Satan, the father of lies. They are slick and persuasive in the ways they lead other people astray, but what their lives produce tells the story of their hypocrisy and seared consciences. As the great preacher Spurgeon once put it, a lying doctrine will soon beget a lying practice. A man cannot have an erroneous belief without having, by and by, an erroneous life. The later it gets, the more vigilance we'll need. The effect of false teaching is defection. The origin of false teaching is demonic. The agents of false teaching are hypocrites. And the fourth principle we need to understand is that the demand of false teaching is ascetic. The demand of false teaching is ascetic. In other words, it calls for extreme self-denial. It says of these false teachers that they forbid marriage, verse 3, and require abstinence from foods. Now, we should probably acknowledge that false teaching can potentially lead you in two very different directions. In, in one case, it might lead you into hedonism to say, well, there is no God, so live it up and do whatever you want. But in the other direction, it might say, no, there is a God, and you better be afraid of him because he's hard to please. And, and so uh, you, you need to adopt this asceticism, this life of extreme self-denial as a way of proving that you're worthy of God's favor. Now, the false teaching that Paul most often confronted was of this latter variety. Not only does Paul address it here, but also in his letter to the Colossians, where he says, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism. Asceticism basically warns you that if you want to be worthy of God, then you've got to deny yourself the pleasures of this world. The material world is evil and takes you away from God. So to be truly spiritual, you've got to get your material and bodily appetites under control, deny the body to better connect with God. Specifically, the asceticism Paul addresses here at Ephesus would forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods. You want to be right with God? Then you should not get married, and there are certain foods you should never eat. It turns the Christian away from living by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit and demands legalistic adherence to man-made rules. It insists that anyone who wants the favor of God upon his life must do these things. Now, to be sure, self-denial in itself isn't necessarily a bad thing, especially in a world where most folks hardly ever deny themselves anything. Abstinence can become important in certain situations. One might abstain from sugar, for instance, in the interest of better health, but these are personal decisions. Uh, one might abstain from alcohol so as not to risk um, addiction. Even in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says that a married couple may agree to abstain from sex for a short time in order to devote themselves to prayer, but these are not meant as long-term strategies for earning favor with God as the false teachers insisted. They preach that holiness depends on abstaining from things that God has given as good gifts to his people. They forbid marriage. 
and demand abstinence from certain foods. And Paul says, this is in fact evil. This is a doctrine of demons. That kind of self-denial has nothing to do with true devotion to God. You know, there have been plenty of examples in American history of false teachers who demanded this kind of asceticism. Consider Anne Lee, for instance, who is known to her Shaker followers as Mother Anne. Uh, she was also known to them as Christ Anne. She figured that the Christ should have both male and female aspects to it. So there was Christ Jesus, and then she said she was Christ Anne. And she insisted that she had visions that revealed that having sexual relations was the ultimate sin. And so sex, even within marriage, was the root of all evil. She taught that celibacy and confession of sin was the only true road to salvation and the only way the kingdom of God could be established on earth. And so Shaker communities, and there were quite a few of them back in the 1800s, early 1900s, and even, even down to the present day, there's still one Shaker community with a few old Shakers still alive. But they, they would live dormitory style, men and women separate from each other because they took a vow of celibacy. To grow their, their cult, they would have to recruit adherents who would also have to agree to abstain from marriage, and sometimes they would adopt orphans and raise those orphans in their community in hopes that the orphans, when they became adults, would choose to stay in their community. But as I said, they're pretty much dying out these days. More recently, there was David Koresh of the Branch Davidian cult. Some of you will remember Koresh and the confrontation between the Branch Davidians and the FBI that led to the burning down of the Branch Davidian compound in 1993. Former followers of David Koresh said that women had to wear blouses with long sleeves and, and could wear no makeup or jewelry. They said Koresh would tell them where to sleep and what foods to eat. Sugar, processed flour, and dairy products were forbidden. And Koresh asked his followers, including married couples, to embrace celibacy. And then he claimed all marriages in the group were dissolved and that all women would be his wives if he wanted them. Talk about hypocrites with seared consciences. By some accounts, he had 20 such wives when he died on April 19th of 1993, including one who became his bride at just 10 years old. Even more recently, there was Andrew Cohen, founder of the global spiritual community called Enlighten Next, that flourished for a while but dissolved in 2013. It also was a high-control cult requiring many of its members to take a vow of celibacy. So there have been a lot of these false teachers around down through the ages. But I believe this anti-marriage teaching today is coming not just from cult leaders, but also from the myriad of false teachers in our society that denigrate marriage so that it seems today the only people who seem to be encouraged to be married are same-sex couples. No one else need bother. Because marriage is a patriarchal dogma intended to hold women down, so run away from it as fast as you can. And people are believing these things about marriage, so much so that over the last 50 years, the marriage rate in the United States has dropped by 60%. And according to the National Center for Health Statistics, marriage rates hit an all-time low in 2018 when there were 6.5 marriages per 1,000 people. Back in 2001, it was 8.2 per 1,000. In 50 years, it's dropped 60%. Be wary of any teaching 
wherever it's coming from. Any suggestion that marriage is bad, unnecessary, or forbidden. Be wary of any teaching that suggests that to be worthy of God, you must abstain from certain foods. Why? Because Paul says in verse 3, because God created these things to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Don't fall for that foolishness, he's saying. You know the truth. You believe the truth. Namely, that your standing with God does not depend upon whether or not you marry, does not depend upon whether or not you abstain from certain foods. That's the doctrine of demons, the teaching of deceitful spirits communicated through liars whose consciences have been seared. That's all meant to distract you from the truth that your salvation depends on the finished work of Christ who gave his life on the cross to pay the debt of your sin and rose from the dead to give you new life. But in later times, Paul says, you'll see people departing from the faith because they believe these false teachers. The later it gets, the more vigilance we need. The effect of false teachers is defection. The origin of false teaching is demonic. The agents of false teaching are hypocrites. The demand of false teaching is ascetic. And then the fifth principle is the most surprising of all because it tells us, believe it or not, that the answer to false teaching is thanksgiving of all things. The answer to false teaching is thanksgiving. He says, so these guys forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. And he goes on in verse 4 to say, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and by prayer. You will recognize false teachers when you hear them say that you must abstain from things that God gave you to enjoy and you must repent if you ever indulge in those things. False teachers are notorious for making people feel guilty about things they did or didn't do that never are called sins in the Bible. Ascetics create guilty consciences and then set up religious requirements that benefit them. They gauge their own spirituality by creating this this world of legalism and fulfill their own rules and pat themselves on the back and make you feel bad. But be careful because sometimes this kind of teaching can creep into Christian circles. And, And so people can be asked to do extreme things for the sake of their relationship with God. Now look, you may have perfectly good reasons if as a Christian you choose to get rid of your TV, or you choose to homeschool your children, or you choose, as Diane and I have, to never drink alcohol, or you choose never to play the lottery. There are perfectly good reasons why Christians may choose to do that, but don't deceive yourself into thinking that doing these things or abstaining from something is what makes you holy. Only Christ makes us holy, and he does so by his grace that we receive through faith, asceticism for the purpose of godliness is actually demonic teaching. So instead, believer in Christ, receive the good gifts that God has given you with thanksgiving. Instead of living in fear that if you enjoy food or you enjoy marital intimacy, that God will somehow judge you for it. See it for what it is, rather, a gift from God to be received with thanksgiving. This is the consistent teaching of Scripture. 
going all the way back to Ecclesiastes, where it was said, go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine and with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of this life that he has given you under the sun. Learning to give thanks is one of the ways we combat false teaching. Instead of living in fear, abstaining from marriage, abstaining from foods we love as if our salvation depended on it, Paul says we should eat and drink and be married. Giving thanks to God who gave us these gifts, for they are made holy, he says, by the word of God. They're made holy by God's own declaration that he has given them to us to enjoy. Made holy by the word of God and by prayer, by our prayers of thanksgiving as we receive these gifts and acknowledge that they come from his good hand. Diane and I have come to enjoy the TV show Blue Bloods about the uh, New York family where, you know, dad is the police commissioner and grandpa is the former police commissioner and the sons are all police officers and detectives and the daughter is a prosecutor and they fight crime as a family and it's a good, good sturdy Catholic family and they come together every Sunday for dinner. There's always a dinner scene. Every Blue Bloods episode has the dinner scene. And I wait for that because it's, it's, it's just so wholesome and good. And, and here are these, uh, these, these folks who are kind of, you know, kidding each other and telling stories and talking about the family business fighting crime. And, and, and then before they ever get around to eating, they always say grace. And it's that very classic, traditional Catholic table grace. Either somebody volunteers to say it or they recite it together as a family. Bless us, O Lord, and these thy gifts, which we are about to receive from thy bounty through Christ our Lord. Amen. And I just love that moment. Have you ever thought that the simple act of saying grace as a family is a way to push back against the false teaching of the world? Affirming the gospel that salvation is by God's grace through faith in Christ. It's a gift that he has given us. And doesn't come to us through our acts of self-denial. By saying grace, we acknowledge instead that everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. You know, it may be true that nothing good happens after 11 o'clock. And it may feel sometimes as if it's getting very late indeed. But that doesn't mean that we live in fear. It doesn't mean that we have to live in fear that some random false teacher is going to grab us and pull us away from Jesus. No, it just means that the later it gets, the more vigilance we'll need and the more boldly we'll need to proclaim the gospel. For as false teachers work hard to pull people away from Christ, we must commit to proclaim the truth that draw people to him. You see, false teaching is aimed to distract you and confuse you and keep you from one simple message. doesn't matter what the false teaching is about or, or where it's trying to take you. It's all about one thing, and that's to keep you from the simple truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. To keep you from realizing first the bad news about yourself and then the good news about what God has done for you. The simple truth of the gospel is that we're in a dreadful dilemma because we're sinners, each and every one of us. 
We're all born into Adam and Eve's sinful race. We've inherited their sinful nature. And because of that, we're born into this world dead, spiritually dead, in trespasses and sins. Remember when God said to Adam and Eve, on the day you eat of that tree in the middle of the garden, you will surely die. Well, they didn't die physically. They died spiritually that day. And everybody who has been born from their race ever since has been born with that same dead spiritual nature. We not only are dead in our sins, but we're worthy of God's judgment. And the, the worst of it is that there's nothing we can do to get ourselves out of this. The debt is so huge, we can't pay it off. Now, that's the bad news about ourselves. But here's the good news about what God has done for us in Christ. The good news is that God in Christ loved us so much that he didn't want to leave us in that dreadful predicament, dead in our trespasses and sins, deserving of his judgment, held in the grip, the bondage of sin in our lives. And so he did for us what we could never do for ourselves. You know, the gospel isn't that God loves you just as you are. No, the gospel is that God loves you too much to leave you as you are. And because he didn't want to leave us as we were, dead in transgressions and sins, he sent his eternal son, Jesus, his eternal son whose life was of infinite worth, sent him into this world to become a baby, to be born a man, to become one of us so he could represent humanity. And then what did he do? All he ever did was live a life of perfect obedience to the Father. Never once sinned in his entire life. Just walked with God and obeyed him at every step. Healing the sick, casting out demons, feeding the hungry, calming storms on the sea, even raising the dead, teaching the most marvelous teaching the world has ever heard. And for that, what did they do to him? Jealous religious leaders accused him of blasphemy and nailed him to a cross. Accused him of, of claiming to be the Son of God. Well, you know what? It isn't blasphemy if you are the Son of God. But they accused him of it anyway. They sentenced him to die. And you know what? Jesus could have called 10,000 angels to deliver him from that death, but he didn't. He willingly went to that cross because he knew that was the only way for us out of our dilemma. He offered that life of his of infinite worth as the only sufficient payment for the sins of all of us. They laid him in a stone-cold tomb, but on the third day, God raised him from the dead, victor over sin and death. And because he did all of that, he lives today and now offers us forgiveness of sin, a new life with God. He brings us from death to life, spiritually speaking, and offers us the hope of heaven beside. Now that's the thing that false teachers of all varieties want to keep you from understanding. This is the one simple truth the church of Jesus Christ has faithfully proclaimed down through all these centuries. And it's available to anyone who will believe. It's a gift that God offers to us. But like any gift, it only becomes yours when you reach out and receive it. And the way you receive this gift is by faith. 
by putting your faith and trust in Jesus, asking him to be your rescuer from sin and your leader for life, saying, I couldn't have done it, but you did it for me. I'm saying yes, Lord Jesus, to you. And if that's the desire of your heart, if you can't remember a time when you specifically made that choice, that decision, I encourage you to do it right here, right now. You can do it right where you sit. and Call out to him in prayer, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Like everyone else, I admit that, that I'm a sinner in need of your salvation. I need you to save me. I need you to deliver me from the guilt of my sin and from the judgment my sin deserves. I put my faith and trust in Jesus to be my rescuer from sin and my leader for life. And you know what? Here's the cool thing. The Bible says, he who believes has eternal life. That those who trust in Christ will not stand in judgment, but will pass from death to life. That's what will happen for you when you put your faith in Christ. And there's a place in the Bible where it says that the angels in heaven rejoice when a single sinner repents. And if you're making that choice right here, right here today, there's a party going on in heaven in your honor right now. But it's important that you not just kind of do this on the sly and keep it to yourself. The Bible says, uh, you know, that you need to confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you'll be saved. And so I'm going to ask you to make your first confession of faith by going out to one of the, either foyer here, you'll see a great big green banner that has the word yes on it with an exclamation point. Just go up to whoever's standing by the banner and say, I said yes. I said yes to Jesus. And they're going to put in your hands this little booklet we've prepared for you. The name of it is Saying Yes to a Relationship with Jesus. And it just kind of talks about what Christ has done and, and gives you first steps in living the Christian life. And let me encourage you with this. We have a baptism coming up in just two weeks. Now, baptism doesn't save you, but baptism is the way that Jesus encouraged us to profess our faith in him. We're to believe and be baptized according to Christ. So baptism is your first step of public obedience to Christ and making a declaration of your faith. By going under the water, you're saying, I have died to that old life with Jesus and I've come alive to a new life in him. And we'd love to have you participate in that baptism service. Um, there's a, a baptism class that'll take place two weeks from today, right after this service. And then that evening at six o'clock at the Bay Beach in Barnegat, we're gonna be baptizing folks. This is one of our, our best days of the year where sometimes we'll baptize 40, 50, 60 people in an evening. And, and if you've recently trusted Christ or you're trusting Jesus as your Savior today, I'd love for you to be part of that baptism service two Sundays from now. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for all that is ours in Christ. And for those who, who are deciding right here, right now, to put their faith in Jesus, to shut out all those other messages that try to distract and confuse Lord, bring them right back to the simple truth of the gospel that you loved us and gave your son for us. And Lord, as people put their faith and trust in Jesus today, give them a, a spirit of boldness to, to go out there to the, to the I said yes station and say, I said yes. Lord, I pray for many who will, who will profess faith in the waters of baptism two weeks from now. Lord, we just want to let you know that we love you. We're grateful for all that you've done for us. 
We're grateful for the simple good news of the gospel and for your goodness in sending Jesus to do all that for us. Lord, as we go, let us go rejoicing in the goodness of God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.